Well, thank you, Jeff. Again, my name is Stephen. Um, if I haven't got a chance to meet you yet, I would love to. Um, and guys, as we shift into um, this new uh, message series, it's called That You May Believe. It's following the story of Jesus through the story of Jesus' life, the biography of Jesus' life, written by a man named John. We call it the Gospel of John, if you're not familiar. Um, but uh, the, the tagline, that you may believe, comes from the end of John, in chapter 23. John tells the reason that he wrote down the story of Jesus. He tells that the reason that he wrote all of this down was that we may believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. And so as we go through this, uh, this series together, starting here in John chapter 4, I want us to keep that in front of us. The reason that John writes and the reason that I speak on these things is so that you would believe in Jesus. And it's not something that you do just once. It's something that we have to be reminded, unfortunately, of over and over and over again. We, we get to discover ways that we get to believe in Jesus, ways that we're not believing in Jesus, ways that we're not putting our faith or our trust in him. And we get to do that together. So today we're going to be in a passage in John chapter 4. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it up. We're going to be in, in the last three-fourths of the Bible, what we call the New Testament. Uh, there's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. If you guys don't have a Bible, they have a phone. You can pull it up on your phone or the words will be on the screen. So we have many ways that you can get this in front of you to see and read. But um, today's passage is uh, a passage that we have come to expect from John. If you don't know John's account, John's account is very different than what we call the synoptic gospels, which are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke put things in a very succinct way. Um, they, they follow a chronology that makes sense, uh, at least in their minds, um, and they cover lots of sermons, lots of miracles. Um, John takes a completely different approach. John takes lots of encounters. John shows us how Jesus actually interacted with people. And so this is exactly what we've come to expect from, uh, from John as we're now in the fourth chapter. He, uh, he shows Jesus talking to people that he probably shouldn't be talking to, in places that he probably shouldn't be, and definitely talking to people that he shouldn't be extending grace to, at least by social norms of the time. But it shows us Jesus talking to someone in great need. John has a way of capturing how Jesus elevates people that are marginalized. He elevates the humble and he humbles the proud. And in today's passage, we see Jesus going out of his way to elevate a marginalized woman because or elevating marginalized people is kind of what Jesus does. So we're going to be in John chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. When Jesus learned that the Pharisee had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He, went to travel through Samaria. he had to travel through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the property that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, worn out from his journey, sat down at the well. It was about noon. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you might be aware of some of the subtle things that are kind of playing between the lines here or in the cultural context of these first few verses. If that's the case, I hope that these next few moments are just a reminder for you of what you already know. But for those of us that may not be well-versed in ancient Israeli politics um, or maybe in Konea Greek or Palestinian geography, I think that's uh, for you. These next few minutes are going to be for you to kind of give you an idea of where we are. 
So first century Israel was divided into two regions, Judea and Galilee. Judea was in the south, Galilee was in the north. Jesus was currently in Judea traveling north to Galilee. In between those two regions, you have this thing called Samaria. Now, Samaria was at one time the capital of what we call the northern kingdom of Israel. God's people uh, had separated into two, uh, two kingdoms after their third king, Solomon. We called the north Israel. We called the south Judea. Well, Samaria was actually the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And in 722 BC, the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom. And they took away a lot of the people and they brought them into exile as slaves. But also as the Assyrians did, and we see this throughout history, they imported a bunch of people into the places. So what the Assyrians would do to help kind of manage and control people groups is they would move them all around. They would take them out and they would put them in different places and they would try to strip away the culture and the religion and all those things of the places that they had conquered. So, see, God's law, though, had forbidden Jews to intermix with the pagan peoples around them. Jesus, or God did this specifically so that he could preserve the worship of him in a way that would make sense. As you put more people groups together, as the Jews would, would intermingle with the pagans, they would start to adopt the other practices, and so the worship of God would start to be polluted. But ultimately, the Jews that were left here in Samaria it began to intermingle with those people because that was all that was there. Why is that important? Well, it's important because when the Assyrian exile ended, the Jews came back to where they were and they found this new people group that we now called the Samaritans and they thought of them as lesser. They thought of them as breaking God's law and then the southern kingdom of Judah also adopted that disgust for the Samaritans. And this resentment grew and festered and became entrenched in Jewish society. In fact, the hatred that the Jews felt for the, the uh, Samaritans was so ingrained that it touched every interaction they had with each other, even their own travel. You see, most Jews, instead of going through Samaria, which would be the fastest route between Galilee and Judea, they would go all the way to the Jordan River, they would cross the Jordan River, and they would take what's called the Transjordan Highway, just so they didn't have to go through Samaria. That's how badly they hated the Samaritans. Conversely, the Samaritans kind of still felt that, at least religiously, they were God's people. They felt that they had preserved enough of, of what God had given them that they were still following Jesus. So they, they felt that... Uh, that, that they worshiped the same God, they, they felt that, that you know, the Jews weren't as bad as the, the Jews felt that they were. See, the Jews, though, had a bit of a pride problem, and if you spent any time reading the stories of Jesus, you could ascertain that pretty well. The Jews thought they were God's chosen people, and no one else got to be a part. But the Samaritans, they had set up their own place of worship at a place called Mount Gerizim. They, they still observed, though, many of the practices that the Jews had. They were still looking for a Messiah or a Savior. They were, they were still looking to the patriarchs to learn from them, guys like Abraham, Moses, and Jacob. In fact, Jacob was one of the patriarchs that was just mentioned, Jacob's well that he dug for his, for his family and for his uh, sheep was still there at this place called Sychar. In fact, when Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, when he was giving a blessing, when he was kind of passing on his land to his children, to his son Joseph specifically, in, <coughs> excuse me, in Genesis, we actually see this place mentioned by name. At the time that Jesus was there, this well had been there 2,000 years. 
What's crazy is that well is still there today. It's still in use today. It's taken God, care of God's people for nearly 4,000 years. So now that we kind of have a, a picture of where we are, of the, the socio-political things going on, I think there's one more piece I'd like to bring to our attention. That's the, the language that's used in verse 4. Konia Greek, that's where, what the Bible was written in, um, is, is kind of hard to translate into English, to be fair. If any of you have taken a Greek class, you realize that there's a lot of things that are, are, are explained in Greek that we don't necessarily understand as we translate it into English. And so our English translation tells us here in verse 4 that, uh, that Jesus had to go through Samaria. But as I've already told you, that's not true. If he was a good Jew, he would have gone across the Jordan and he would have taken the Transjordan Highway. So he didn't have to go through Samaria. Now, now we could maybe surmise that, that maybe he was in a hurry, right? And so to, to quickly get from Judea to Galilee, he just needed to, to go through Samaria to, uh, you know, to cut some time out because Jesus knew he didn't have a ton of time. So that's, that's one plausible way to understand the text. But I think that the original language actually hints to something much, much deeper. In the original Greek, there's a, an allusion to a prompting or an urging, a compulsion to go through Samaria. There was something that seemed to be drawing Jesus to Samaria. And I honestly believe that the accurate reading of this text gives us the understanding that Jesus, compelled by his great, the great need of the people of Samaria, and compelled by his great love for the woman that he would meet at the well, he felt the urge to go through Samaria. Not to save time, or not because there was no other way, but because, friends, the truth is, is that following Jesus draws us toward people in need. If you follow Jesus long enough, his love is going to bring you to people in need. In fact, bear with me, if you're following Jesus and it isn't drawing you toward broken and hurting people, the poor, the immigrant, the widow, the orphan, then I don't know if you're actually following Jesus. You might think that that's a harsh thing for me to say, but, but if we look at Jesus' life, that's where Jesus was. If we look at Jesus' disciples, that's where his disciples were. In fact, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, in his letter to the early church, puts it this way. He says that true religion to God the Father is taking care of widows and orphans. Those are strong words, but if, if we want to know Jesus better, I think we should love others better. If we want to be more like Jesus, maybe we should do more things that Jesus did. Jesus was constantly going to places he wasn't supposed to go, loving people he wasn't supposed to love, and going after the ones who everyone else had given up on. In fact, Jesus was so known for doing this that it actually starts to turn around. Those people, the hurting, the broken, the widow, the orphan, they started to know that if they came to Jesus, he would accept them. They started to come to him, and Jesus got this reputation as someone who would welcome sinners and sex workers and, ch and children and women and tax collectors, second-class citizens. They, Jesus, at the, the end of his ministry, didn't have to seek them out. They sought him. His reputation to attract these people is what the religious elite used to show that he wasn't of God. But Jesus showed it to show what grace really looks like. 
And how different would our world be? How different would our churches be if we were known for this? How much fuller would our churches be? How much fuller would the kingdom of God be if the poor, the disenfranchised, the sex workers, the prisoners, the orphans, if they knew that we were a place to come and find truth? How much more would earth look like heaven if we were that place as the church? And I believe we can be. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing if I didn't think that was it. I believe we can be the people who really look like Jesus. But I think that we need to understand one simple truth to get there. Every interaction is a ministry opportunity. And Jesus understood this. If you know the stories of Jesus, he used pretty much anything as a ministry opportunity or a teaching tool. He used fishing, guys climbing trees, dinner parties, weddings, funerals, festivals, and even quote-unquote chance encounters with people at wells. He took ordinary moments and he made them into sacred ones. He never let a chance go by. He never shied away from inviting people to repent and to enter his kingdom. He never let a chance meeting go by, or no, sorry, he never let a chance to meet someone's needs go by, both physical and spiritual. In the end of John's account of Jesus' life, he states, John states that if everything Jesus did were to be written down, there wouldn't be enough ink or paper in the world to capture it. Jesus used every interaction to teach people about himself and his father. Jesus knew that every encounter was a ministry opportunity, and because he did, people responded by seeking him out. If we as a church became people who knew that every phone call with a teacher, every purchase at a store, every wave to a neighbor, every coffee date with a friend could be leveraged for a sacred moment, how different would our churches and our lives be? How could we change our speech, our prayer lives, or our calendars, or our attitudes to make this fit? Friends, we interact with people every day in ordinary and seemingly mundane ways. But I believe that God's calling us to use those mundane, ordinary moments to show people love and grace and to show them Jesus. Jesus does this really well as the story continues. Verse 7 says this. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Give me a drink, Jesus said to her, because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew... Ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman, she asked him. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Now here, Jesus does a few things that in his day would be completely scandalous. The easiest for us to understand, based on what we've already talked about, is that Jesus, a Jew, was talking with a Samaritan. Now, the translation we, that we have here for Jews do not associate with Samaritans, honestly, I'm not a Bible translator, but every commentator that I read, uh, who they do know uh, the Bible a little bit better than me, uh, they all agree it's a really bad translation because we actually know that the disciples are literally going into town to buy food for Jesus, so they're associating with Samaritans. So, so what does this verse really mean? What it really means is that uh, and, and how I think it probably should be translated is that uh, Jews were not allowed to use eating utensils that Samaritans had used. 
See, their hatred of the Samaritans had even entrenched itself into their religious law. And so in, the, in their law, if you were to use the same eating or drinking utensils as a Samaritan, you would become ceremonially unclean. But here Jesus, without anything to drink, as we'll find out in the next verses, says, can you give me something to drink? So Jesus is being scandalous in every way imaginable. Another scandalous piece of the story is the gender difference. See, Jewish men didn't traditionally talk to women outside of their family. They definitely didn't talk to Samaritan women. Occasionally there would be reason for them to interact, but it would be mundane things. It would be transactional. But Jewish men would have robust religious conversations with each other. They would never include women, but at the end here, we see Jesus beginning a spiritual conversation with a woman. So let's recount quickly the ways that Jesus is breaking the rules here. He's a Jewish rabbi speaking to a woman who is a Samaritan to talk about religion. In everyone else's eyes, Jesus would be on thin sand here. You get it because there's no ice. I wrote the joke. I had to keep it in there. So anyway, I think the biggest thing that we can take away from Jesus shattering social conventions is that we should follow the gospel as it breaks down barriers. I just listed like five barriers that should have kept Jesus from extending grace to this woman. But instead, he just breaks them down. Jesus knows that he's bucking the system, but it's a man-made system. It's not God's kingdom. It's not God's laws. He tears down everything in his way to bring the gospel to this woman because she matters. Are we willing to do the same? Maybe it's not social conventions that are obstacles keeping us from bringing people to Jesus. But what are those obstacles? Is it maybe someone's worldview? But have we ever actually taken time to listen to someone's worldview? Not listening so that we can tear it down or tear it to pieces, but listening so that we understand it, so that we understand them. What obstacles do we put in place between people and Jesus in the way that we worship? It used to be clothing. If you didn't show up in the right clothes, you weren't welcome in most churches. Now, we have relaxed on that a little bit. But what is it about our worship? Are we willing to change the way that we worship to give people easier access to Jesus? Maybe the barrier is as simple as a full calendar. Are we willing to stop doing sports or music lessons or skiing or book clubs or whatever else that fills up our time in order to sit across from people who don't know Jesus to introduce them to him? If only I could have a true realization of how much I honestly need Jesus, I would rearrange everything about my life so that I could meet them like Jesus did. But I don't. I'm very much a work in progress, but I pray that every day, I would become more like Jesus and find more ways to pull down more obstacles between Jesus and people. Verse 11 goes on to say this. Sir, said the woman, you don't even have a bucket and the well is very deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you? He gave us this well and he drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said, Everyone who drinks from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give them will become a well of water springing up 
in him for eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and come here to draw water. So Jesus offers this woman living water and eternal life. And what is her response? It's scoffing, to be honest. How could you possibly give me anything? You have nothing to offer me, is what she says to Jesus. And I think this attitude is found in our area pretty often. People feel like when we offer them Jesus that we're either offering something that we can't offer or that they can find for themselves. But humans, we have this insatiable thirst because there's an unfillable emptiness that's created by our separation from God. And as humans, we are so desperately searching for things that only God can give. Unfortunately, we are also actively running away from him. Sometimes we think that people are searching for God. Romans 3 tells us that's not the case. And St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was a a 13th century uh, theologian, kind of explains what people are actually searching for. He explains it like this. He said that humans are constantly searching for peace, for relief from their guilt, and something to fill their emptiness in their souls. And because we are believers, and we know that only Jesus will satisfy, we assume and we conclude that they are thirsting for Jesus. However, if they were searching, truly searching for Jesus, then when presented with the gospel, they would respond. But how do most people respond when we offer them the gospel? They reject it. At least at first. People are looking for something that's inherently about them. They want something that will fix them. They want something that will quench their thirst. But the call of Jesus is inherently about him. And our need for him and his glory. And we see this played out perfectly here in the story of Jesus. Uh, this, this woman is offered eternal life and her response is, yeah, well, tell me what I got to drink so I don't have to come to this well anymore. It isn't, thank you for offering me eternal life. See, she doesn't want eternal life. She wanted peace. She wanted an end to her suffering because, you see, there's something else that we can ascertain from this passage if we look at the words that it gives us. We can learn about this woman something that we might not have realized at a first read-through. Verse 6 tells us that it's about noon. Verse 7 makes a point to say that this woman approached the well, and it appears that no one but her or Jesus are here. See, water was essential to life in, an arid, in the arid desert climate of Palestine. It was needed for washing and bathing and cooking and obviously drinking. And noon would have been one of the hardest, hottest parts of the day. We know from, from history that women would come early in the morning to collect the water, or they would come after sunset so that they could avoid the heat. It doesn't make sense to carry gallons and gallons of water for, you know, maybe a mile or more back to your house when it's so hot. They would also use this as a social time, because most of their time was taken up by taking care of their kids and taking care of their house and taking care of their families, so they would come to the well together to talk. It was the only time that they actually got a chance to be together and just talk. But there's this woman by herself, middle of the day. Why? Because she's hiding. 
She didn't want to be involved in the shame that would come from associating with the women around her. How do I know this? Well, we'll get to that next week as we discover more about what Jesus knows about this woman. But Jesus knows all of this. He knows everything, and he still offers her eternal life. But all she can see is a way out of her shame. If she would never have to come to the well anymore, she would never have to face her accusers again. She wouldn't have to be around the women who gossiped about her, who probably hated her. There's such a longing in her soul for a break from her shame that she can't even actually see the offer that Jesus has placed before her. She was blinded by her low status, by her shame, and ultimately by her sin. The beauty of the Bible, though, the beauty especially of John's, uh, uh, John's account of Jesus' life is that he, he puts stories together so that we can see things about Jesus that we might not see before. And he puts this story right after a story about a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus now was a Pharisee. He was among one of the strictest adherents to God's law. He was part of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. They were kind of like the Jewish supreme court, so they would interpret the law of God. And they were the senate. They would also make new laws. He was a great theologian. Jesus himself referred to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. He was a male, and he was Jewish. He was everything the Samaritan woman was not. But Jesus knew that their need was the same. You see, the need for Jesus is universal. They both needed Jesus. When we look around at our community, there's need all over the spectrum. For some, it's physical. For others, it's spiritual. Some seem to have everything they want. They, they feel like they have everything they could ever need. And they don't need anything. So we don't even offer them Jesus, but they still need Jesus. Then there's those that feel like they have nothing, where they have everything, or sorry, they need everything but Jesus. For someone who may be experiencing homelessness, what does Jesus have to offer me? Well, that person needs Jesus as well. John here is showing us that whether people are blinded by high status or low, shame or pride, they are all blinded by their sin. Now the other side of that coin is that the need for Jesus is personal. Each of us need him, all of us need him, but Jesus didn't present the gospel in the same way to these two people. To Nicodemus, he uses Old Testament imagery that would engage his mind and would force his theological worldview to conform to the truth of Jesus. But if he would have said the same things to the Samaritan woman, she would have had no idea what Jesus was talking about. With the woman at the well, he offers her a drink of living water because, well, he was at a well. He used an ordinary moment and leveraged it as a sacred one. And he decided that how he presented the truth of who he was would be different based on who he was speaking to. Didn't have a formula. Didn't have a way that he did the same thing all the time. Because he saw people's need for him 
as personal. As we aim to be like Jesus, we have to remember that extending the truth of Jesus to people will look different based on who they are. Jesus is willing to seek out each person where they are and on their level, but are we? Are we willing to invest the time, the effort, the pain that it takes to walk with people to introduce them to Jesus? We used to just give tracks or stand on street corners. But friends, it takes so much more to bring people to Jesus. Knowing who they are is just a great place to start. But the final thing that I want us to really focus on, as a, as a pastor, I love to, to, to force us to look outward. But I want us, as we end, to look at ourselves. The last thing I want us to respond to is this question. What do we use to clench our own thirst? I think that we often fall into the same trap that St. Thomas Aquinas taught, described to us. We can need all of the things that Christ offers us, but still be running from him. If we've put our faith in Jesus, we have this thirst for what God has to offer, but so often we search it out somewhere else. We search to quench thirst that only Jesus can quench through other means. We look for financial security to give us peace instead of looking to the Prince of Peace. We look to, to do good things to assuage our guilt and shame instead of laying them at the feet of the cross and understanding that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. We look for truth in books and TED Talks or whatever else that we use instead of looking to the one who is the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, Jesus is the only thing that can quench our thirst of longing. It's the only thing that can minister to our souls. But are we looking to him to fill our empty souls? Or are we taking things of this world and trying to put them in the place that only Jesus can fill? What do we use to quench our thirst? How, can, how are we like the woman at the well? When Jesus is offering us everything, and all she can think about is her physical need. All she can think about is the shame that she feels. Do we use Jesus as a well to draw water, or do we understand and immerse ourselves in him and allow him to become a well within us? Let's pray. God, we're so thankful that you are the well of life. Lord, that you are the only thing that truly can quench our thirst. Lord, as, as I prepared this week, Lord, you continually showed me your love and your grace and mercy for me. Times in my life that you came to me, that your Holy Spirit came. And Lord, I pray that I would be someone who would reciprocate. Lord, that I would seek out hurting and broken people. That I would rearrange my calendar. I would rearrange my travel. I would rearrange the things that, uh, that fill up my life so that I can leverage ordinary moments into sacred ones. Lord, I pray that for my friends. Lord, I pray that you would move in our lives. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would be so present in our lives that as we interact with people in stores, as we interact with friends over coffee, as we talk with a teacher on the phone, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would draw people to you. 
Lord, we would give ourselves the opportunity to introduce people to you. Lord, and I pray that I would be someone who would only go to you, only go to your well, the well of living water that now is, is bubbling up inside of me, Lord. When I am thirsty, when I need peace, when I need freedom from shame and guilt. But I pray that my focus, my eyes, my heart's attention would be on you. The only place that we can be free. In Jesus' name, amen.